Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. It's hard to see patients, the treatment, the impact it has on them and their family, but they're always a pleasure. Really, they really are a pleasure to look after and um, it's great to be able to support them in that time. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have had lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat, and this is the Aftershock Podcast. Being diagnosed with esophageal cancer is life-changing and takes an enormous toll on your body and mind. The surgery required to treat the cancer is one of the most invasive operations. Ensuring the patient is set up for success post-surgery requires a team of experts. One of these experts is Lisa Manen, Senior Dietitian at Alfred Health. In this episode of the Aftershock podcast, I chat to Lisa about the role a dietitian plays in patient care, specifically around patients undergoing an esophagectomy. Thanks for having me, Suze. Um, so my role is I'm a clinical dietitian at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, and my role there, I guess I've got a few roles, but the, the one that's um, most relevant to our conversation is that I'm an upper gastrointestinal surgery dietitian. So I've been working in that space now for nearly nearly 13 years or so. I've been at the Alfred um, looking after patients who have resection of their stomach or their esophagus specifically. So that's my usual clinical role, among other things. I also lead the service for what's called enteral and parenteral nutrition. So that's feeding via a tube into your gastrointestinal tract or into your stomach or feeding intravenously for patients who aren't able to eat. So we also manage that um, within the hospital at the Alfred as well. What drew you into the dietitian world? Well, initially I thought I wanted to be involved in exercise, so whether it be exercise physiology or a trainer of some description. So when I was at uni doing my undergrad in sport and exercise science, I organised some work experience for myself at the Brisbane Lions, being a mad Lions fan. Um, but the, the, the trainer that day was actually sick, so I ended up shadowing the dietitian and I just loved it. So I was really interested in sports nutrition and got into the Masters of Dietetics, finished that. And as, as part of our training, we, we do a placement in hospitals. Um, and it was there that I got exposed to, I guess, the clinical side of things. And I just became really interested in the interactions between nutrition and disease and how we can help people as dietitians who have different conditions at different stages throughout the treatment or care. Um, so, yeah, I guess it was the health exercise component. But then when I, my eyes opened up to the clinical nutrition world, um, it really grabbed my attention. Um, and then surgery did a bit, a bit more down the track as well. So what did you love about it when you got that first taste? Um, are you a Brisbane girl? Is that why you go for the Lions? Or is this like an old Fitzroy thing? Yes. No, no, it's a Brisbane. So I grew up in Victoria but moved to Queensland when I was quite young. So I've, I've grown up mostly in Queensland. So, yeah, ended up watching the Brisbane Bears and moved on to the Lions. So, yeah. <laughs> well, not, not a bad choice at all. What did you love about it? I loved that we were able to help people in a time that they really needed it. I found that, as I said, in the hospital setting, you know, meeting people who had an illness that we could contribute to improving the way they either managed it or 
the way that they help we could help them recover from that. And I think specifically for surgery, like I've always found the gastrointestinal tract really interesting. Um, a bit of a nerd loving the liver and the pancreas and how that helps in digesting our food and things like that. Um, but but you know when patients have those organs removed, that's even more challenging. So being there and to be able to provide advice for them to help them recover in a really challenging situation is what appealed to me the most, particularly for that group of patients, yeah. For uh, us non-medical people, or maybe this is just a me thing, what is a gastrointestinal tract? Yeah, so the gastrointestinal tract starts really in your mouth and goes all the way through down to your your bottom end. Um, So that would include um, your esophagus, which is your food pipe. Um, So after you swallow, the food moves down your esophagus, goes into your stomach, which I think is an organ that most people are familiar with, um, and then it transitions slowly through your small bowel and into your large bowel before passing it out. Other organs like your pancreas um, and and your liver, your gallbladder, those types of things that are also involved in in releasing different enzymes to help digest food, and there's obviously a a range of roles that they all play um, in different other conditions, but they're also involved in um, in yeah, digestion and absorption of nutrients. Um, so the gastrointestinal tract is, is, I guess, the key when it comes to nutrition and how our body manages it. Yeah, amazing. I'm glad I asked because that is much more complex than I thought. <laughs> yes, um, it is. <laughs> we met through Professor Wendy Brown, who um, her, is the Director of Surgery at the Alfred and specialises mm. in esophageal cancer. Um, when you started getting exposed to surgeons and, and an operating team, what, mm. what role did you find you were playing in that experience? Yeah, so when I was first exposed to that group of, I guess, either the, the surgeons and the patients, I was just working on the ward. So I would see patients after their surgery and it would be the first time that I meet them. And at that point in time, we'd find out, you know, what, what organ they had removed and why. And we would start to um, engage with the patient and help them to plan for how they're going to be eating in the future. In terms of, I guess, the involvement with the surgeons overall, we would go to uh, their, the meetings that they have uh, to discuss each of the patients. We'd go on ward rounds um, to be involved in um, the nutrition side of the patient's care as well. Um, and then in more recent years, we've been more involved in, I guess, in collaborating or, or doing research with the, the surgeons as well in the area of esophageal and gastric cancer. Um, Wendy made a, just, I didn't realise this, but when we caught up with Wendy a few weeks ago with mm. um, some of the team from the Aftershock, she, there was a really good question that was asked that because when you have esophageal cancer and you have an esophagectomy, part of your esophagus mm-hmm. is removed. And I think a question was mm-hmm. around, can you have like an implant or, you know, something that um, fills the gap between your esophagus and your other organs? And Wendy described it really, yeah. really basically that um, your esophagus mm-hmm. is like a like a worm and it massages food down your throat or your esophagus. So it needs yeah. to be able to yeah. be able to move, which I'd never thought about it about um about it like mm. that way before and also it it doesn't stretch mm. so you can't pull it down i guess so to speak um yes what what attracts you about um that particular uh, like esophageal cancer world in particular yeah i i 
It's probably because we play such a pivotal role, to be honest. It's the patients, I guess there's different types of cancer, obviously, and different treatment pathways. The, the cancer itself means that because of the location of the tumour, one of the symptoms or signs of having esophageal cancer may be for some patients the difficulty eating, food getting stuck or, or having more reflux or bringing food back up again, those types of things. So the inability to eat can start quite early in patients. So we may be involved really early for people um, as soon as they're diagnosed because they may only be getting fluids down or something like that. Um, when it comes to later down the track, um, when they have part of their esophagus or stomach removed, um, they early on they require either feeding through a tube, depending on the patient and, and what they've had resected, um, but also they need you know, fluids only for two weeks and then they go on to pureed food like baby food type food um, for another two weeks and then soft food for two weeks. Overall, their ability to get enough nutrients in during that time is very limited and it's a very challenging period. So you know, early on, I'd be speaking to them sort of each week um, to help them along their way. It's not easy. They have days where they feel really bad when they eat and other days are better. So it's a challenging time and I think the appeal to me early on was just knowing how important nutrition was for those patients and being able to support them through the journey. I felt like it's a fulfilling area to work as a dietitian because what you're doing is making a difference and, and you're needed in that space. Absolutely. And I think it's when you hear about cancer in a medical team, I, mm. I don't think dietitians are thought of as much as your oncologist, mm. your surgeon, nurses, etc. Um, but I know for yeah. my mum's my experience, it was a really key part uh, and that probably didn't go mm. that well in terms of side effects. So she had radiation into her chest, which, mm -hmm. so she developed a metallic taste mm. in her mouth. Um, she wasn't a big eater when she was 100% healthy. So um, mm. in hospital, the thought of eating a tray or a plate of food was not appealing to her at all, especially when you don't have an appetite. Mm. And then you have the other things that go on in a hospital like, smells and yeah. depression and and things like yeah. that like all these things that affect you mentally as well as physically when you have cancer mm. have you had instances um where i guess your advice or the nutritional plan has hasn't mm. been well received it's an interesting time for us to get involved so i think a lot of the time perhaps when you're seeing a patient for dietary advice in someone who is more well, who may have diabetes or high cholesterol or something, um, that's not a condition they can see and they may mm. not feel the need to make change immediately when you first have that discussion with them. However, for patients who have just been diagnosed with cancer or now we see all the patients before surgery so that they know what to expect after, they're actually very receptive because they've either lost weight, they're already struggling to eat, or they've already been told about the challenges of keeping their weight on after surgery or how much weight they're going to lose. So it's actually, they're, they're very receptive at that time. I think everyone's level of, you know, it's about willingness to change and they're probably willing to change because unfortunately they have to at that point. Um, but to what level, it really depends on, it depends on so many things, you know, um, someone's knowledge of food, their interest in healthy eating, their usual 
patterns of eating, um, how good they are at cooking, who else is there to support them with that food and, and food preparation and things like that. So I think as long as we have an understanding of someone's baseline knowledge and their willingness to change and, and what tools they've got to make those changes, um, they, they are receptive at that point in time. But there's certainly times when people are less receptive and it, and it can be challenging. I often find that we'll sort of plant a seed, have a discussion, they'll go away and come back and be like, yes, I agree, I do need to make these changes or they start to lose weight too quickly and then they are willing to sort of take on the advice that you had given them. So in this context, a fairly receptive group, I think. For those who aren't aware, why in esophageal cancer is your diet and the conversation you would have with the patient and that the surgeon would have pre-surgery so important like what's the big body change that happens that makes your diet even even more crucial yeah so for any surgery it's important to be prepared from a nutrition perspective because obviously surgery is a massive insult on the body it can cause inflammation it requires your body requires a lot more protein to heal after surgery and just the total amount of um, nutrients that you need to recover from surgery is a lot higher if you were to eat normally after surgery a couple of weeks of that not eating much would probably wouldn't matter Um, however for patients um, after an esophagectomy or a gastrectomy when you have your stomach removed we're talking you know very, very small amounts of food, down to maybe half a cup at a time um, for periods where the amount of food they're having is so little that their body weight reduces quite rapidly. What we know about that is, you know, we might have some patients who perhaps were above the ideal weight range or felt that they had some excess weight to lose. They're often quite happy about this. They've been trying to lose weight for a long time and all of a sudden they're losing it. Um, So we need to have those conversations around the fact that when you're losing weight so quickly, particularly after a surgery, you're often losing muscle mass um, and not necessarily your fat stores. So muscle is a, is a really important component um, of your overall health and obviously you can't, you know, two people could weigh the same, someone's got more muscle than the other. Um, but, yeah, the, the weight loss after surgery means that most of the time it's happening really quickly and you're losing your muscle stores more than anything else. Do you think that... Um and I'm very much guilty of this, There's the level of knowledge for patients around internal organs is quite low. Like really, I it wasn't until I met you and Wendy and the team and I actually saw diagrams. I'm like, oh, I didn't know the esophagus looked like that. I didn't know that is actually where your stomach sits. Do you think there's more yes. of an education piece around because our gut health is so important, our digestive system is more important, that there needs to be yes. a greater education? I think so. I think I often forget, um, can start talking about esophagus and, and people look at me and I'm like, oh, I actually need to explain what that is. Um, thankfully, the surgeons, as you said, they've already drawn a picture. So patients come to me having some some idea. But I think a lot of people just eat and don't think about much else in terms of what happens or, or the process at all. And so, yeah, when we're having those discussions around well, gut health is getting a lot more um, interest these days, particularly sort of in mainstream media, which is which is useful. Um, but in terms of your, your esophagus and your stomach and how that works and um, how to to eat so that you're not you know eating too much food at once and having problems along those lines um, is something that we probably need to get better at. I think 
um, I know there was a campaign in the UK just all around just it was esophageal cancer based but it was predominantly around educating people about what your esophagus is and what symptoms in your esophagus feel like because people would say you know chest pain or you know tummy pain but not be able to really have a, have an idea about where those organs are sitting in their body. Mm, yeah and I definitely had no idea before I got involved with this and um, esophageal yeah. cancer is a, a really important cancer research area for us. So it's been a bit of steep, yeah. le- steep learning curve, but yeah, a simple diagram yes. definitely goes a long way. Um, probably yeah. particularly in the um, esophagectomy field, do you find mm. um, you develop quite a relationship and a connection with patients? Yeah, definitely, definitely, particularly as I said, initially we only met them after surgery, but now we are interacting with patients uh, basically at diagnosis, so getting nutrition information from them then. And obviously, as you know, it's not just about the patient. We get very involved with the family as well. So we would be involved from diagnosis through their um, chemo radiation, then they have their surgery, and really we're involved probably up to six to 12 months after their surgery as well um and as i mentioned earlier a lot of patients well some patients i should say require feeding through a tube and we're heavily involved with those patients we'd be speaking to them nearly every week and you know the radiotherapy dietitians would see them every week so yeah we do get very involved and it can be a challenging area to work in because it's it's hard to see patients go through the treatment the impact it has on them and their family um but they're always a pleasure, really. They really are a pleasure to look after and um, it's great to be able to support them in that time. Um, you just mentioned feeding through a tube. How how long is that indefinite mm. in some cases? No, no, not normally or rarely would it be indefinite. So the first time a patient may need feeding through a tube would be if their esophageal cancer is um so large that they can't get enough nutrients through their esophagus. So uh, a feeding tube may be put down before they start their chemotherapy or their radiotherapy, um, and that is just to enable them to make sure they're getting enough nutrition during that time and, and don't experience weight loss in the lead-up to surgery or even if they're not having surgery, just during their treatment. The radiation and the um, chemotherapy helps to reduce the size of the tumour before surgery so in that time most people would have some recovery in their ability to to drink or eat so they may have the tube removed before they have the operation Um, some people might have a tube inserted during their surgery which is a different type of tube and a different reason and again that would not stay in for uh, not an indefinite period it may be it's hard hard to say everyone's very different but it's not intended to stay in there long term it's just a short-term method of um, supplementing or giving them extra nutrients through the feeding tube. Do you find this really has an impact on quality of life post-surgery as well? I mean, people, especially living in Melbourne, dining out and the food scene is mm. such a such a big mm. thing of social interaction. Do you find it impacts people um, mentally as well? Yes, it does. Eating after surgery, particularly early on, is really challenging i think a lot of people say they can get frustrated even if they're having dinner with family they just can't get through the same amount of food so it does take them a while to 
be able to adjust to eating out, know what to order, um, you know, smaller portion sizes, know that they need to slow down when they're eating, chew really, really, really well before swallowing. Those types of things can take a sort of a long time and, and a bit of trial and error, to be honest. So it can be, yes, food can be a source of frustration for everyone involved. So for the patient themselves, they don't feel like eating. They want to be because it's a social event or an outing, um, but they can't. And their loved ones often stress because they're not eating and they can't seem to get any more in them regardless of what they do. So it can be a stressful time from that perspective and it definitely can affect people's mood and enjoyment in eating, which is what a lot of us do when we're out about with friends. What research are you conducting at the moment in this field? Yes, at the moment I'm doing my PhD and we... The idea of, of that PhD is to, as I mentioned earlier, um, our body composition is not just a, a weighing a patient. So our body weight can be made up of is made up of bone, muscle, and fat, and muscle plays a really important role in our overall health. But when it comes to patients with cancer, uh, it's been shown to impact how patients, um, or, or I should say, loss of muscle has been shown to influence how well patients tolerate their chemotherapy. Um, and it's also been shown to influence how well people recover from surgery or how likely they are to have a complication. So the, I guess the premise of the research is looking at measuring body composition using scans that patients have, the CT scans that patients have and other mechanisms, try to understand I guess, the impact of low muscle mass and malnutrition, uh, what, what are the impacts of those things on, on recovery after surgery. And, and how they change after the patient has the surgery in terms of their ability to eat and things like that as well. And how difficult is it to get funding in your field? It's challenging because particularly in esophageal cancer or, or rarer cancers or rarer cancer surgeries, to get a large research grant, you need data. To, to get data, you need time and resources and for the most part as dietitians we're clinical dietitians so all of our time is going into patient care or seeing patients um, you know, in person so to get that data we really need to be well most people would be doing something like myself a master's or PhD research which is essentially in your own time um, to start developing or answering some questions that you might have in that space but to move beyond that and start getting um, more funding, uh, sorry, more research done, you, you do need funding. And, and often to be competitive with the larger research grants, as I said, you need some data. So you need to start building either just smaller grants or bits of um, funding from smaller places to get some research behind you before you can be competitive with some of the, the funding or the research grants that are, I guess, um, most people who are successful have much larger cohorts of patients or um, more common conditions um, or bigger research um, centres behind them. So, yeah, it, it is really important to even help us do small parts of research along the way so that we can start building the amount of information that we've got about these patients and, and really look toward, you know, if we're finding out that muscle mass is a problem, if we know that patients lose it while they're having their chemo radiation and they lose even more after surgery, we need to start looking at what we can do to prevent that and, and reduce that muscle loss and improve, I guess, the way that patients recover and improve their experience throughout their treatment is ultimately what we're aiming to do. 
That's exactly what I was just about to ask. What do you want to see from Mm. this research? Like what would you want to see change? And I guess it kind of, you've sort of just answered it, um, Mm. answered it, but it's essentially improving their lifespan as well and their and their quality of life yeah yeah because it doesn't seem it seems like it's a small thing to say that um you know patients who lose more weight and lose more muscle do have a shorter lifespan after their cancer surgery that that is has been shown in in a lot of data so if we know that the next question is, well, you know, what are we going to do about it? So what what is needed from a nutrition perspective? What is needed from an exercise perspective? So there's the pre-surgery component. And then after surgery, it's about trying to improve the patient's quality of life because it's challenging. So as you know, the surgeons are looking at um, how the esophagus moves. So before you mentioned it being a tube, pushing food through, how does that look after surgery so understanding um, things like that and then working out how we can help patients eat better or tolerate their food better after surgery as well is a really important factor in just just how they how they manage afterwards and and long term because these symptoms of the surgery can can last long term so what what can we find out to help them manage better and have an overall better quality of life? Do you um do you have a plan, I guess, or something you'd love to, you know, if the, if you had the research tomorrow, do you have something you'd love to implement yeah. straight away? I do. I have a grand plan, but my, my plans are always, t- I'm always told they're too far ahead of where I'm actually <laughs> up to. Um, but look, I would, I would love to see a, a program in place where, for not just for um, esophageal cancer, but a lot of the gastrointestinal cancers, so upper gastrointestinal, where we're able to identify patients with low muscle mass straight away, um, where we're able to measure the change so we can look at how the muscle is changing over time. We have a program where it's a set nutrition program. There's an exercise component that patients can start with as soon as they're diagnosed um, and then again after surgery, another um, I guess an intervention about how we're feeding patients, what sort of exercise they need, um, and uh, I guess it would be pre-operative and post-operative care. So it's called prehabilitation and rehabilitation, um, but with a much larger focus on assessing people's change in muscle over time as well. And I think it's a really good point you make. A lot of people are familiar with rehab or rehabilitation, but no yeah. one really speaks about the prehab component. No, that's all sort of stuff I'm interested in, but I really would like to, moving forward, create some tools that are helpful for patients. I've, I've been throughout my research and, and another project that I'm doing at the moment, I've been getting some feedback from patients. And you know, it's all good and well in theory to say eat more protein, but it would be good if we had the the resources to develop some more tools that teach the patients about the esophagus, about how it how it empties and how your stomach works, and and you know really in depth meal plans and and um, cookbooks and resources and things like that. I think would be really helpful. So. You know, it's all good and well for us clinicians and researchers to want to answer these scientific questions, but if that doesn't mean much to the patient, um, it's not that useful. So I really want to see some of what we're finding implemented into a resource or a tool that's useful for our patients. So I haven't quite worked out what that would look like, but 
that's the feedback I'm hearing from people. So it would be great to work with even some of the patients um, who are interested in this area as well in the future, hopefully. Oh, absolutely. And not just for the patient, but then how do you turn that into something the family will enjoy as well? Like when they're not living alone, they don't, mm. want, they don't want to just sort of be isolated. They want it to be great to have things where you've, well, I guess it could make the wider household more healthy as well, which is always good. But yeah, how can you apply it to potentially a family situation as well? Yeah, I think that's really important. Otherwise, it's that concept of I'm unwell, I need this special food, everyone else carries on eating how they were. So I think I think that whole family approach is, is an excellent idea. And, you know, a lot of the time when we meet with patients, it's with family and the carers and support networks because they're the ones, particularly early on, doing doing all of the, the cooking and the preparation and things like that. So they, they're actually probably more interested than the patient at the, at the start. Um, so engaging them is really crucial as well. It's such a good way for people to be able to help as well, not just family members but friends mm. because there's yeah, you point. almost couldn't feel more useless as a family member or friend watching someone go through cancer. But mm. if that's a burden mm. or something you could take off the patient and help them with, I know it, like the first question people ask is what can I do? And usually you yes. can't do much unless you're on mm. the medical team or yeah you've got some hidden skill that no one knows about um but even even the prehab i think is such a non-spoken part of a cancer experience um and Mm. some things come on extremely suddenly but even just getting your mind and body as healthy as possible should something happen to you um it's just people just don't talk about it no, and I think you touched on something there that I haven't covered is, and it's not, not my area of expertise, which is why I haven't covered it, but the, the mind as mm. well um, I think is something that, and look, there's a, there's a lot of really good prehab programs out there already that exist, so it's not a new concept by any means. It's just not something that we have established um, at the Alfred and, and I guess in, in this space particularly. It's often in other cancer areas as well. Um, but, yeah, the mindset around it is really important also, definitely. Thank you so much to Lisa for sharing more about her profession with us. Rehab is definitely something we hear a lot about. However, we still have a lot of work to do in prehab and preparing our bodies for major health treatments. Until next time, I'm Susie Neat, and this has been the Aftershock Podcast.